0: Hello, this is Tommy Peeler, and our program is carefully examining the text, and today we look at Psalm 33. You may notice in your Bibles that Psalm 33 doesn't have a heading. It is the first psalm since Psalm 10 which did not have some heading in the Hebrew text. Psalms 1 and 2 did not have a heading in the Hebrew text, Psalm 10 and Psalm 33. These are the only four psalms in the first book of Psalm that do not have some kind of heading. Verses 1 through 5 say this, Sing for joy in the Lord, Lord. O you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him with a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now, as you look at verse 1, notice connections with Psalm 33, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. In both, we're told to shout or sing for joy. Those who are addressed are described as those who are upright and those who are righteous. The lack of a heading in Psalm 33 only makes these connections between the end of Psalm 32 and the opening of Psalm 33 more evident. The Bible says praise is becoming to the upright in verse 1. In the book of Proverbs, we read that things like excellent speech in Proverbs 17, 7, and honor in Proverbs 26, verse 1, are not fitting for the fool. They are not fitting to be bestowed upon one who is foolish, but what is fitting What is proper, what is becoming, is praise for the upright. Sing for joy in the Lord, O righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. Notice here he specifically mentions instruments with which they praise the Lord. They are to give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, sing praises to God with a harp of ten strings. They are to play skillfully at the end of verse 3. Now, in the Old Testament, often these commandments about the use of an instrument are closely tied to temple worship. If you read 1 Chronicles 25 and some of the divisions that David made in the temple, you'll see the use of instruments in the temple closely tied together. You also see this in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25, in the days of Hezekiah. You do not find a commandment like this in the New Testament. And that raises the question... Uh, are these parts of temple worship, kind of like sacrifices, that have become obsolete. But they are to give thanks, they are to sing praises, they are to sing to him a new song. And singing a new song is often associated in the Bible with some new act of deliverance that God has brought. Sing to Him a new song. And the Bible says in verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright. Now remember, the followers of God are addressed as being upright in verse 1, and here in verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright. Is upright God's word is upright all his works are done in faithfulness the word translated faithfulness has as its root word the Hebrew amen God is reliable God is trustworthy God is dependable God is faithful and the Bible tells us God loves righteousness and justice Many passages of Scripture associate God with righteousness and justice. These are the foundation of his reign. Psalm 89 and verse 14, Psalm 97 and verse 2. But notice God does not just practice righteousness and justice, but he loves them. The ideal king in Psalm 45 and verse 7 loves righteousness And hates wickedness. Here, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The word "loving kindness" used in verse five will reappear in this psalm in verse sixteen verse eighteen and in verse twenty-two. So, in verses four and five, you see God being upright, God being faithful, God being righteous, God being just, and God's loving kindness are all highlighted in the text. Verses six through nine deal with God as the God of creation. The words evoke memory of Genesis chapter 1. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God spoke our worlds into existence. When you consider how awesome our universe is, when you consider that if you could travel the speed of light it would take 100,000 years to get from one end of our galaxy to another and the neighbor in the distance between neighboring galaxies is more than that and god spoke it all into existence the heavens and all their host all the stars all the things that are in the heavens, God spoke into existence. In verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and lays them up as a storehouse. The idea may be that God sets a boundary for the sea which it cannot pass. Jeremiah 5 verse 22 has that language. Job 38 Verses eight through eleven speaks in a similar way. The second and third days of creation may be referred to in verse seven. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. We know there are things in creation that inspire awe. We look at Niagara Falls. We look at Victoria Falls. We look at other great things in creation, and we stand in awe of the one who made it all. And understand that God in His glory is far greater than what He created. The Creator dwarfs His creation. As He is said in Isaiah 40, verse 12, to hold the waters of the world in His hand or to mark off the heaven by the span. Let all the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world to stand in awe of Him. The God who could sp- speak the worlds into existence is worthy of our praise. The God of creation is the God of history in verses 10 through 12. He is the one that lifts up nations and brings down nations, He is the one that nullifies their plans. Notice the contrast between verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. While the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, in verse 11, the counsel, same word, of the Lord stands forever. In verse 10, while the Lord frustrates the plans of the people, the same word is used of God in verse 11, and the plans of His heart are from generation to generation. There is often in the Bible a contrast between man's ways and God's ways, between man's determination and God's carrying out of the plans. For example, in Proverbs 16, verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In Proverbs nineteen, in verse twenty one, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord it will stand. Our Creator always maintains veto power over the plans of his individual creatures and the plans of his creatures collectively as in the nations of men. And God can nullify their counsel and frustrate their plans while at the same time his counsel and his plans will stand forever from generation to generation. But notice a difference between verses 10 and verse 12. In verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Now notice he used the term nations and peoples in plural in verse 10. He's using them in a singular in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. Here he seems to refer to a specific nation. The nation of Israel through whom he revealed himself and through whom he was working to ultimately redeem and to save all nations. A nation that had the Lord as their God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. The tribe of Levi did not have an inheritance, a land portion, as the other tribes had. The tribe of Levi said it was said of them in Numbers 18 that the Lord was their inheritance. Here in Psalm 33, the Bible is speaking of us as God's inheritance. An amazing statement. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Our God is God of creation in 6 through 9. He is the God of history in verses 10 through 12. And he is the God who knows and sees all. Notice the similarity between the language of verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks from heaven, verse 13, he sees all the sons of men. Verse 14, from his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. You can clearly see the first line of verse 13 is parallel to the first line of verse 14. When the Lord looks from heaven, is parallel to from his dwelling place, he looks out. In 13b, the second line, he sees all the sons of men, is parallel to the second line of verse 14, on all the inhabitants of the earth. The Lord sees all men. He sees all men, he knows all the inhabitants of the earth, and he understands all. All there is to know about each of us. Verse 15 He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The word all, the same word was used at the end of verse 13, at the end of verse 14, and at the end of verse 15. The word which is translated fashions at the first of verse 15. Is the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 when the Bible says God formed man out of the dust of the ground? It's the same word used in Psalm 139 verse 16 when God forms the child in his mother's womb. It is a word sometimes as a participle that's translated potter. But God forms, He fashions, He sculpts the hearts of men. He understands all our works. All the works of all people are evident before our infinite God. Verses 16 and 17, the king is not saved by a mighty army. Kings were the most powerful of men. And they enforce their will via an army. But the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Notice verses 16 and 17 mention the king, the most powerful of men. It mentions a warrior the strongest of men, those who do battle for the king, and the horse upon which the warrior rode. All of these are symbols of strength. The king, the warrior, and the horse. And yet, the Bible tells us that in spite of the fact that the king may have a mighty army and the warrior may have great strength and the horse... The horse may have great strength. Still, these things in verse 16 do not save, do not deliver, and do not rescue. Some in chariots and some in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20 verse 7. Strength of a king doesn't lie in the multitude of his army. The strength of a warrior doesn't lie within his arms. And the power of a horse doesn't rest in its neck and in its legs. God is the source of all our strength. God is the one who can hold us up in times of difficulty. God is an awesome God. In verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope for his loving kindness. Now, in verse 13, we talked about the Lord looking from heaven. In verse 14, he looks out from his dwelling place. And here in verse 18, his eye is on all, particularly it is on those who fear him. Does the eye of the Lord bring you comfort? Or does it bring you affliction? Are you terrified at the thought of God seeing and knowing all our deeds? Or are you comforted by it? Well, it depends on our relationship with God. But here in verse 18, the eye of the Lord is comforting. It is reassuring, much as it is in the next psalm, when Psalm 34 verse 15 tells us the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The fear of God was mentioned before in verse 8. It's mentioned again here in verse 18. And God's eye is especially on those who fear him, who love him, who trust him. And he delivers them from death and keeps them alive in famine. He is attentive to their need and quick to act. In times of difficulty. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. If you look at Psalm 115 verses 9 through 11. That phrase he is our help and shield is repeated three times in 115. 9 through 11. Here in verse 20 of Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have helped, as according as we have hoped in Him. Powerful Psalm. We have talked about the Psalms as they relate to Jesus. And let's see a couple of points we can make about Psalm 33. The Lord is pictured as creator in Psalm 33 in verses 6 through 9. Jesus is pictured as creator in John 1 verses 1 through 3. In John 1 verse 10, the world was made by him and the world did not know him. Colossians 1 verses 15-17, through 17, by him all things were created, whether they be in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, all was created by God and by Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 2 makes the same statement. The point, God is creator, Christ is creator. The Bible says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Jesus is identified as the Word of God. In John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1:14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In Revelation 19, verses 13 and 14. The title of Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the one through whom God nullifies the plans of the nations and establishes His own plan, as Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 state. The language of Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12, very similar to Psalm 2. And remember, Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts 4, verses 25 through 28, and applied to the events surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are the ultimate demonstration of the fact that the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people, but it's His counsel that stands forever, and His plans from generation to generation. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of that. For wicked men put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. God demonstrates that his plans trump the plans of the nations. And through that death, and through that resurrection Psalm 33:19 God is said to deliver their soul from death to keep them alive in famine. Verse 19 refers to deliverance from a near death experience, but Jesus does more than keeping us alive during one particular famine. He raises us from the dead never to die again he delivers our soul from death in a deeper and greater way than psalm 33:19 describes thank you for listening to this podcast may the lord continue to bless you